Good morning. Thank you, Joe. I always love when Joe reads the scripture because I think he just has like the most perfect radio voice. Like I could hear him having his own radio show and I would listen to it all day long. So, so thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. Um, good morning. My name is Christina. If we haven't met before, I am the director of musical worship here at Midtown. My husband, Cade, is up in the back. He's the director of production here at Midtown. And our daughter, Nora, is the director of bopping around the church and screaming in the middle of the worship set, which she did today. So thanks for that, Nora. <laughs> um, normally you would see me up here, but um, we're going to change it up a little bit this morning. Thank you so much to Lindsay for leading us in worship. Thank you to the team. Um, I'm really excited and honored to be able to bring the word to you today from the pulpit. When Alex and Cassie asked if I would be willing to participate in our summer series of the Minor Prophets, I was really honored and humbled and thankful that they would trust me to bring the word to this community and um, they told me which prophet I would be preaching on. And they said, Nahum. I thought, oh boy. <laughs> so, I mean, granted, I hadn't really read Nahum in a little while. Um, I don't know if any of you have either. So <laughs> I finished my work day and I went home and I cooked dinner. I put Nord bed, you know, like did all the things as a family. And I sat down and I was like, all right, I'm going to read Nahum. It's just two pages in our Bible, three short chapters. So I was like, I'm going to knock this out. I'm going to get a little bit of a feel for this now that I know what I'm going to be preaching on. And again, I thought, oh boy, <laughs> this is uh, not the, not the one I was expecting to get. <laughs> Um, you know, some of the minor prophets or anything in the Old Testament, really, we kind of have like this idea sometimes of what it's about. We have some plot lines, maybe some vague recollections of a Sunday school past or maybe the faint distant whispers of some vegetables singing to us. And, you know, uh, Nahum doesn't have any cartoons or silly songs sung about him. And I think there might be a good reason for that. <laughs> So we're going to walk through it together this morning. So um, not much is known about the prophet himself. His name means comfort or comforter. And Nahum is broken down into three short chapters, but each of them serves their own individual purpose. So chapter one is a message of deliverance. This speaks to God's character. He is the rescuer. And chapter one is a message of hope to the Israelite people. We read Nahum chapter 1, and we're going to read those, those short verses again. So Nahum 1, 2 through 7 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those who take refuge in him. So chapter two is the fall of Nineveh. This chapter describes what is going to take place and how Nineveh is going to come to an end. Nahum is depicting the various events that happened throughout their downfall. Kind of like um, if you watched like uh, Law and Order or Criminal Minds and they kind of like flash to the different events with the criminal committing the crime. It's kind of like that. They're not particularly sequential, but he's trying to give us an idea of what is going to happen. And then chapter three, a woe oracle. This is the chapter that contains incredibly vivid and poetic language to describe God's wrath against Nineveh. So when we look at the book of Nahum, we realize that there isn't just one audience, but there's actually two. Yes, the book is communicating to the Ninevites. He is telling them what is going to happen to them, but this message is also for another people. This is actually a message of hope and deliverance for the people of God. So this message is meant to reassure God's chosen people that he sees them and he is going to bring evil to an end. But Nahum had some convincing to do. And here's why. The book of Nahum is addressing the people of Nineveh and we have actually met them before. If you were here for Brad's sermon a couple weeks ago on the book of Jonah, these are the same people that are being addressed in that book as well. But it's a very different message. God is actually extending mercy to the Ninevites. He is calling them to himself. He is extending a hand for them to take and receive repentance, to receive mercy, to receive grace. And we see the Ninevites seemingly taking this and turning from their ways. But where we find ourselves in the book of Nahum is roughly 150 years later, and the Ninevites have turned their back on Yahweh. They have decided to lay down the mercy and grace that God has extended to them, and they have picked up violence and persecution once again. So why was this message of hope such a hard sell for the Israelites? Like I said, Brad preached on Jonah and gave us a little bit of context on the Ninevites a couple weeks ago, but let me just refresh your memory a little bit if you weren't here or if you may have forgotten. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That was the greatest superpower of the time. And Assyria and Nineveh in particular were well known for their absolute brutality and cruelty and brutality and their just perversion of persecution. This wasn't something that they were trying to hide either. We look at their artwork and we see graphic images of beheadings and people that are just like shanked through with a giant spear and people being flayed. And I would not recommend looking it up, just kind of take our word for it that this is things that you wouldn't want to happen to you. But they boasted their brutality. They used their horrific crimes as a weapon of their warfare. So not only are they brutal physically to the people that they captured or the people that they conquered, but they also were psychologically torturing the other people and making an example of this is what, you ha this is what happens to you if you come against the empire. Extreme brutality. And Nineveh was also one of the oldest cities 
in the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire itself had been in power for quite a long time. So we're receiving a message that one of the most powerful, long-standing, most ruthless nations is going to come to an end. I think I may have a hard time believing this myself if I were in the Israelite shoes. But God is bringing forth the promise that although his people have been afflicted, he is going to bring relief. He is going to show himself as the comforter to his people. The book of Nahum shows us that God cares. He cares about our lives. He cares about our pain. He cares about the injustice that takes place in our world. We need to understand how deeply burdened our God is by the pain that we experience to begin to understand this book. See, we're often so much more comfortable with the thought of God extending mercy and being a gracious God than a God that punishes wickedness. So let's talk about this a little bit. As we get into chapter two, and especially chapter three of this book, we see some really intense language describing the downfall of Nineveh. But what we see happening here is that Nahum is describing how the sins of the people of Nineveh that they afflicted onto other people are going to come back and bring forth their own destruction. Now, there were likely numerous gods that were worshipped by the Ninevites and in the Assyrian Empire in general. But one of their very prominent goddesses was named Ishtar. And Ishtar was known as the goddess of sex and war. So we see a people who worship perversion and violence coming to an end through their same practices. Let's read Nahum chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charm. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? It's worth noting that Nahum is not throwing around this language lightly. He is directly correlating Nineveh's sin with their destruction. And if we were the Israelite people, we would already have an understanding of what was taking place inside of Nineveh's walls. This would be personal to us. Remember that Jonah, when he was told to go to Nineveh, ran the other direction. This is not a place that we wanted to be, not only because of the atrocities that were taking place, but because they knew people that were experiencing them. 
Like I said, it was personal to them. And so although some of these scriptures are jarring for us to read, to listen to, we need to understand the depth of Nineveh's depravity and God's disdain for evil that was created. We see his heart for justice in it all. God is slow to anger, abounding in grace, but he will not let injustice reign forever. And we currently live in a very similar context. There is not a day that goes by that we are not encountering story after story of tragedy, whether that be in our world, in our community, or personally. The reality is that we have likely become so used to the darkness that sometimes it loses its weight. Tragedy and brutality have become topics of regular conversation. Mass shootings, excessive force, true crime, systemic racism, and Me Too have all become part of our culture's lexicon. And these are important things to discuss. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about them. They're important. But the fact is, is that the acts behind these words are happening so frequently that we have just gotten used to hearing them. There was a news article published on June 26, just a couple of weeks ago, by the Kansas City Star titled, A Crisis. After a violent weekend, Kansas City is on pace for the worst year in homicide. It reads, as of Monday, 99 people had been killed across the city, compared to 95 by this time in 2020, which marked the deadliest year on record with 182 homicides. We see the impacts of our broken world so clearly in our own city. And day after day, we are inundated with headlines of violence, stories of suffering, and hopeless notifications. It can bring us to depression or to despair, and it can start to eat away at our souls. Or maybe the most common response, it can lead us into numbness. We begin to isolate ourselves from suffering, refusing to engage in a hurting world because it just hurts too much. But Nahum's prophetic message is that God is faithful in the midst of brokenness. God sees us. He mourns injustice. He mourns our pain. He mourns the state of our fallen world. When we look at the evil and exploitation, the conflict that is so prevalent in our world, we begin to believe that God is indifferent. But Nahum is a reminder that God is deeply invested in the business of our lives. He is not a God that just watches from afar, never thinking of us. Moreover, our Lord has actually walked in our shoes. He has experienced the deep pain of loss and brokenness. If we follow the story leading up to and through the crucifixion, we watch Jesus experience the sting of suffering over and over again. 
betrayal from one of his dearest friends, someone he would consider to be a brother, someone who he spent day after day with, teaching, traveling, experiencing the exciting and the mundane, someone he shared his very life with, handed him over to death. We see the rest of his close community absolutely scatter. They leave him to face his fate alone. Some even deny that they knew him at all. And when we see our Lord murdered in the most unimaginable, painful, cruel, disgusting way, we see him submit to drink a cup that he asked to be taken away from him. He experienced the extreme agony and brutality that was created by our world firsthand. Our God understands pain and utter brokenness. And though Jesus knew that resurrection was coming, he certainly wasn't excited to experience the pain of his death. It was only through love and obedience to the Father that he submitted to it. He does not negate our experience just because he knows the ending, because he knows what it feels like to walk through the valley of death. He acknowledges the gravity of our ache and willingly steps into it with us. God does not ask us to pretend that our pain doesn't exist. On the contrary, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He invites us to take refuge in him, to express our ache and our anguish. He promises to bring comfort to those who are afflicted. God reassures us that he sees the things that we walk through. He sees the brokenness of our world and there will come a day when he makes all things right. Psalm 34 reads, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Worship team, if you'll join us again. When we are in the midst of misery, it is natural to respond in ways that simply make our hearts grow colder. But God is extending the invitation to us to be comforted instead. So what do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of brokenness? 
Through the course of our lives, we are going to go through ebbs and flows of either experiencing brokenness ourselves or walking with others through theirs. And in our last few minutes, I want to offer some suggestions for those who are walking through painful seasons. And if you aren't currently walking through a painful season, rest assured, hardship and suffering are right around the corner. (laughs) So when we're experiencing brokenness, number one, instead of withdrawing and isolating ourselves, lean in. Lean into community. We were not meant to walk alone. God has placed people in our lives to be his hands and feet, to shoulder some of the weight. Before we moved to Kansas City, um, I was on staff at a church where we used to live in Pennsylvania. And it would take hours to tell you about the dark seasons that we walked through. Many of us have become familiar with the phrase church hurt, and we experienced a lot of our own. I could tell story after story of heartbreak and corruption that we experienced, but I think you could also tell your own. But it's the imperfect people that God brought into our lives afterward that brought forth such a deep healing that I didn't know existed. He used the people that I thought were not of him at all and and showed us what the body of Christ really looked like. That was one of the greatest vehicles of our healing. People are imperfect But seeing God's design for what his body should actually look like become a reality in our lives softened parts of my heart that I thought were dead. And people are still going to fail. We're going to fail in this community. We are going to have moments of conflict and missteps because we are not perfect. But as we strive to follow the way of Jesus... We learn to live in his upside-down kingdom. We become more like him, and we learn to live in community. And if you find yourself today saying, I don't have community to lean into, please come talk to us. And I don't want this to sound like a ploy, like, come join our church. (laughs) But know that there are people that want to walk with you through your pain, through everything that you experience, the highs and the lows. And so if you don't have that, please come. That is what the body is supposed to look like. Number two, instead of being hardened by our pain, be vulnerable. To lean into community, we have to be willing to be vulnerable. It is so much easier to try to just carry on and never let anyone in. But what happens is that that root of pain just digs in deeper and deeper. It's scary to be open, especially when we have been vulnerable and only greeted with hurt before. 
And I'm not saying you need to share all of your deepest, darkest secrets and all of your pain and everything that you've gone through in your entire life with the first person that you see when you walk through the door. But it is important to find a person or maybe a couple people that you really trust to be totally transparent with. Because we're never going to heal if we continue to walk around wearing a mask. Number three, instead of being skeptical, be reminded. When we're in the valley, it's really easy to forget the promises of God. It's easy to forget what the peace of Jesus feels like. And we begin to question and fear takes over our thoughts. But if we look at how Jesus dealt with the wilderness, he looked to the Father. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, he continually answered him with scripture, the words that the Father had spoken. He persevered by looking to the promises of his Father. And if you begin to read the Psalms, you will find chapter after chapter of lament, of questioning, of comfort, We can look to his word to remind us of what we don't currently feel. It's a gift that was freely given to us. Number four, instead of running away, make space. Sometimes when we are experiencing the brokenness of our world, we often just want to shut it off. We try to numb our pain through entertainment, through substances, through busyness, or just plain old denial. We feel like if we can distract ourselves enough that maybe the pain will go away. And as hard as we try, we will never be able to outrun the reality of the pain that we experience. So instead we make space, cut out the noise, allow yourself to feel all of the things that you are feeling because we have to be able to mourn to move through it. I'm reminded of the passage in 1 Kings where Elijah is up on the mountain with God and he experiences all of these phenomenons. He experiences the wind and the fire and the earthquake and the mountain is crumbling, but God isn't in any of those. There's a hush, some translations call it a thin silence. And that's where God spoke to Elijah. We don't often see God very clearly in the chaos, but when we set it all aside, we make room. That's where we see him. And there's another side to this. Maybe you don't currently find yourself in the midst of brokenness. So how do we be the people that walk with others through theirs? Number one, be present. The first step is to be willing. In our culture, we are constantly bombarded by the message of self. Do what's best for you. Put yourself first. Think about yourself. Build your empire. We become so wrapped up in our day-to-day life that we never look at those around us. And I'm not saying that this all stems from selfishness, but the reality is is that we are just a highly distracted people. 
We have to make an intentional choice to put aside distractions to see other people. Number two, listen with love. This goes hand in hand with being intentional with our focus. We all have so many things happening in our own lives, but sometimes we end up doing a lot more talking when someone really just needs a person to listen. Or there are times that we find ourselves in the midst of our struggle and a well-meaning brother or sister gives us a word that they intended for encouragement, but it's much more like rubbing salt in the wound. God is working all things together for good. Everything happens for a reason. God gives his hardest battles to his strongest warriors. It's a personal favorite of mine. We often don't know what to do with suffering. And so we try to fix it. But the reality is that oftentimes we can't fix it. But our role isn't to rescue everyone. That, that's up to the Lord. But we can receive people with love and give them space for their pain. We need to learn what it really looks like to hear people. Number three, weep with those who weep. In Romans 12, Paul is instructing the church as to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And just as we rejoice with those who rejoice, we are also instructed to weep with those who weep. More and more, we see the characterization of God's people being one of judgment, oppression, hypocrisy, and that's a totally different rabbit hole that we could fall right into. But let me just say this. God's people should be marked with compassion. Jesus' life and ministry were marked by it. He wept with Mary and Martha when their brother had died. He had mercy on the adulterer. He embraced the leper. He healed the sick. He spoke to the beggar and change their lives. This is our example. And lastly, carry each other's burdens. We were not meant to walk alone. And just as we ourselves need to lean into community to be vulnerable, we also need people on the other side, ready to walk with those through their wilderness. Being present, listening, mourning with one another, they're all part of the work of bearing each other's burdens. And no matter what end of the spectrum we find ourselves on, the invitation is the same. The invitation is to know that God is faithful in the midst of brokenness. He does not forget about us. He is unchanging, and he continues to keep his promises time after time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted. Jesus, thank you for walking through pain so that you could understand what ours felt like. 
Lord, let us begin to understand that you are inviting us in to comfort. That the pain that we experience day to day is very real and you've never told us to pretend that it's not there. You invite us to give it to you, to find rest, to find peace, to know that you are faithful, to bring hope to the hopeless, freedom to the captive. Jesus, would you show us what it looks like to embrace hope listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.